Is this it? Yes. This is the Something Who secret bunker. Now get back. Richard? Yes. Paul's on the rampage. And who have we got here? I found him on Twitter. He was an open target. Well, I didn't know. I suppose you didn't. But you know now. Can you talk about Daleks? Yes, I can get by. Good. We need to make a podcast. Richard, where have you been? What the devil have you been doing? It's the Daleks. They're back on TV. What? BBC One? At Christmas time? Yes. Well, this time we'll be ready for them. You shouldn't be up here. I'm as active as anybody else. All right, Paul. I know. Ah, another pair of hands. Good. He knows about Daleks. Oh, really? I know every Dalek prop by sight and can tell you where it's been and who sat in it when. Excellent. I'm going through the podcast plans with Richard and Giles right now. I want you to be there. Now we have a secret weapon that cannot fail. Hello and welcome to Something Who podcast episode 38. I'm Richard and after the 2020 highlights episodes we're back once again with our classic format and in this episode we're looking at first Doctor story Dalek Invasion of Earth followed by the very recent 13th Doctor story Revolution of the Daleks. Joining me once more are Paul. Hello Paul. Hello. Uh, And Giles. Happy New Year. Yeah and to you. Belatedly. Yeah. And our special guest, the man who knows everything about Dalek design and Dalek props, it's Gav Rymel from Dalek 63 to 88. Hello. Oh, that's going to be Ray Kuzik then. Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> what? From the grave. Or well, Spencer Chapman. <laughs> so, yeah, it's great to have you on Something Who, Gav. Thanks for coming along. Thank you for having me. And uh, I hope you're all okay in these rather turbulent times. Got wine. but anyway uh, I guess on with the show so we're going to kick off by talking about Dalek Invasion of Earth written by Terry Nation directed by Richard Martin it's the second story of season two right at the end of 1964 my initial thought when I watched this and I have to say I probably haven't watched it in about 10 years was this is recorded right at the end of the first series of Doctor Who. I mean, they hadn't stopped for a break since recording the first one. But it feels like they've forgotten how to do it. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> the TARDIS is kind of a bit beaten up and the windows are falling in. The Daleks don't look or sound quite like they did. And they can't even get the extermination sound effect right. It just seems a little bit odd to me. I don't know if, if any of you had any thoughts on that. Interesting, isn't it? Because in later years, we'll get used to the fact that the last story in a production block will look a bit tatty because they've run out of money. So there might be a few mm. black backcloths where we once would have had a nice shiny set and so on. And, you know, and the budgetary constraints will be seen in various ways. But this isn't that, is it? All right. It doesn't look expensive. It looks like there has been money spent on it. Yeah. But it also looks like it hasn't always been spent in the best ways or to the best effect. So is this because of its position at the end of the series? Or are you just saying you think they should have learnt more? I don't really know what to make of it, to be honest. They should be like a well-oiled machine by this point. 
Does anything directed by Richard Martin feel like a wallowed machine? <laughs> well, <laughs> Kevin suggested a particular single point of failure, a particular weak spot in this production that might explain everything we've, we've noticed. <laughs> there is a great sense of that'll do. I mean, throughout a lot of his work. Yeah. Mm. It mixes some quite clever stuff. I thought, oh, that's an interesting camera angle. I didn't expect yeah. that to be. Yeah. It mixes these quite experimental and interesting moments with absolute bathos, you know, the, the most yeah. pedestrian stuff you can imagine. And it's I was pleasantly surprised because, having, again, not seen it for a good few years, I was kind of expecting it to be pretty pedestrian throughout. And so there were, there were things that I thought, OK, that's interestingly done. And then it was kind of clunking back to earth a few minutes later. Some of the ambition is also the architect of its own downfall. And, and it's odd that Richard Martin sees certain things as potentially injecting some dynamism, like the high camera angle that you mentioned, mm. which immediately ruins the cardboard cutout Daleks and the mm. and the backcloth. It, it's like it's, um, it's fighting with itself over w- what the best approach is to take. And, and mm. it kind of falls between two stools. His blocking is never as tight as it should be. And I think that's probably the single biggest failure is everything being in place to look great and then a slightly sloppy style of execution mm. just leads to things being seen that you're not meant to see, people not being in the right position. I went into this wondering if perhaps... I mean, that's what I'd always assumed, that it was Richard Martin almost solely that was letting the side down. I went in thinking perhaps I'd see something differently this time, but I didn't. Almost everyone else is doing their best work, and he's not, and he's filtering it incorrectly mm. to the viewer. I also thought to myself, am I being unfair? I mean, it's about time we're overdue a discussion of Richard Martin because I, well, because I've been <laughs> criticising him on podcasts for for years now, and um, <laughs> j- just in very offhand ways. So I think perhaps I ought to explain exactly what what my problem is. But Gav's got there first. It's, it seems to be a, a misunderstanding of what you can and can't get away with in in a small studio. Hmm. And you can't um, fault him for lack of ambition, can you? But other people do better with the same resources. That's for example, hmm. Dougie Campbell, for example. Hmm. I mean, we never get to see what it'd be like in a really tight character piece set in an elevator. Maybe, maybe it'd be brilliant. At that we don't. Maybe it'd be just as terrible at that. I don't. I don't it know. It would still all but be he, in long shot somehow. But they <laughs> give the camera him. outside the building. Yeah. If there was an excuse to have all your cars scattered to the four corners of the room, he would still have them all stood lined up <laughs> as if they were on the narrowest proscenium arch stage in theatre land, reciting their lines in turn. The, the film stuff is really quite good, particularly that bit where you've got Dortmund lying on the ground and he's shooting above that through a gap and there's the milk float or whatever it is coming out of the, the building. I mean, all, mm. that's rather nice. There's all that stuff in central London. I mean, at least it's recognisably central London. So that's a bit surprising for this era of Doctor Who. Can I disagree with that slightly? Go on then. As a kid, I was overexposed to the images of the Daleks on Westminster Bridge. Yeah, it's an iconic yeah, sure. image. Yeah. And it was an enormous disappointment <laughs> to see it on VHS. And that shot isn't yeah. in it. And not only is no. it not in it, but the angle that he chose is so poor. And so that shot of, of basically just the domes and the necks above the railing of the bridge is so disappointing compared to the imagery that one might think you were going to get. You couldn't choose an angle that would sell that moment any less, could you? It <laughs> <No. laughs> might as well just be. It might as well just be there. Before, the domes yeah. on a stick being walked along by mm. a load of yeah. on any bridge. Yeah, as you say, from the from the photographs, we know they were up there. We know it yes. was, was deserted. He, so he took the still cameras up there, but not the. I agree with both of you. 
There's some really nice angles in the film stuff and some other angles that make you think that those were just flukes. <laughs> and, then, and weird designs like Daleks doing Nazi salutes. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that was him. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think Mr. Nation. You've, have you seen the script, Gav? Yeah, no, there's no, there's nothing in the script like that. No. Talking about the ambition versus the execution, the idea to have the Dalek coming out of the Thames, which is fantastic. Yeah. Let's go and realise this on the banks of the Thames in real life. It kind of works on location. The Dalek's in about a foot of water. It doesn't pan out, so they have to restage it in studio. And the same failing happens again the next time they do it for the chase. Mm. Let's go and do it for mm. real. And people were warning him, this ain't going to work. Just don't bother trying. And it failed, and they had to remount it again, this time as a model shot. It's that ambition versus practicality. I get a sense that he doesn't have an enormous, strong feel for what is practical and how things will pan out, but he has lofty ideas about things Mm. that might look good. Mm. Which is obviously why they brought him back for the web planet, because that's exactly the sort of gung-ho, can-do attitude (laughs) that you need. (laughs) I would love to know the actual financial situation that surrounded, for instance, the realisation of the jungle of Mechanus versus the jungle of Kemble, for argument's sake. Is that purely a budgetary thing? Does it cost that much more to hire pot plants than to paint a (laughs) net curtain with a rubbish bit of vine? The Jungle of Mechanus is an excruciating disappointment every time I watch it. I feel really guilty about this because he was a really lovely chap the one time I met him. Um, (laughs) (laughs) At the anniversary. Just because he wears a cravat doesn't mean he's lovely. (laughs) (laughs) True, but I got to have a little chat with him and Toby. He wasn't lovely about Terry Nation, though, was he? Was he not? Ah. I'd read you a quote, but I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. Oh. I made mean, another hour of editing Richard, for Richard, but do it anyway. <laughs> Richard, you can get a comedy sound effect. Clown I, could, I could self-censor it. I'm not sure if I can find the quote. Talk amongst yourselves. I, I would like to be able to defend Richard Martin if I could. So, uh, just as a thought exercise, I've been wondering, we feel like he's that much worse than most Doctor Who directors. And there's also a sense, I think, in which most Doctor Who looks less tight than a lot of other TV drama of the time. Is that fair? I was mulling this over, and then tonight I randomly watched an episode of ITV's 1964 army cop drama Red Cap. Mm-hmm. This is not connected to Doctor Who in any, any way, except that it's from happened to be from the same year. And like a lot of those ABC Revision programmes, the direction was incredibly tight. Mm-hmm. And it must have been filmed pretty much as live with the same sort of restrictions as Who. Okay, there's less action, less model shots and effects, but it's the placing of the cameras that makes something dramatic or not dramatic. Mm. and it seems to have been so tightly rehearsed. When the actors are still, the cameras are moving, or they're cutting. When the cameras are still, the actors are moving, as though they're on a stage set. Somebody's thought about every single shot in every single scene and kept it lively in exactly the way that Richard Martin doesn't seem to. Mm. Everyone's on Mm. the ball, on their mark. The actors are never ahead of the cameras, the cameras are never ahead of the actors. Mm. It's just ridiculous, just how much better. It's just a random example of TV from the same era, and I just thought, yeah, no, it, it can be done. Did you happen to notice who the director was? It was directed by Raymond Menmuir, but I wasn't oh, expecting oh. it to be a name that means anything. Cause okay. I'm not sure ITV directors overlapped much with the BBC anyway. I suppose not, because the Beeb had its own kind of courses and everything. I had a fairly similar experience once watching an episode of Adam Adamant and thinking, bloody hell, this is well directed. And then, then I realised it was um, one of Ridley Scott's first directorial gigs. I thought, ah, that explains why this is a cut above... And he famously went on to direct G.I. Jane, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's a, it was on the upward part of his trajectory. Peaks and troughs. And, uh, 
this is like tangent, but I grew up thinking on the fringes of um, just general cult TV appreciation. I was always being told that the BBC was much better at everything than ITV. Everything on ITV was looked cheaper, even though they had all the money. When you grow up and start watching this stuff yourself, whether it's the Avengers or Callan or Public Eye or whatever, they generally seem a lot tighter than the equivalent BBC stuff, mm. and I'm not quite sure why that would be. Maybe the BBC people all came from the theatre, I don't know. Yeah, it probably um, depends what you're looking at. You know, there's probably a whole raft of ITV sitcoms that look a bit naff. This but is true. Then, but that having said, that probably the BBC ones do. I was just yeah. going to say, shooting and editing on film, I think, is the most significant production difference that sets those apart. I always look at that opening sequence of Web of Fear, all that stuff shot and edited on film. It looks like a, a reasonably budgeted film, just mm-hmm. because they've got the time to frame it, light it, and cut it. I'm waiting for Richard Martin on, on Terry Nation. Oh, I, I can give you. I can give you that quote. I can self-censor. Richard Martin's opinion of Terry Nation's scripts: He was an effing awful writer, lazy and arrogant. He would have been excellent at writing cartoon strips for the Daily Express. It was that standard. David Whittaker had to patch up Nation's appalling scripts. Okay. Well, it's interesting you should say that because I've got a, a thought about that, which I was just coming on to. It, it's an extraordinary collision of two ideas, this story, because you've got a kind of classic, what you call a Terry Nation, dystopian, survivors, Blake mm. Seven, Genesis the Daleks type feel of, of a bunch of people struggling to survive in a kind of difficult situation. And you've also got a bonkers SF plot about the Earth's core. And, you know, one could almost imagine the latter is straight out of the David Whittaker book of Wheel in Space, or maybe the sort of slightly weirder aspects of Evil of the Dalek. Mm. But I'm, I dare say it's not quite as simple as that. I know when I spoke with, with um, Jeremy a few months ago, he was very much talking about David Whittaker's sort of moral core and how that sort of came to the fore in Doctor Who. But but yeah, it just, it just feels like two very different ideas stuck together. And, and it kind of almost works, but there is a bit of a strange shift round about the middle of part five because of that, I think. Mm. I guess Nation had to come up with an idea big enough to justify what would the Daleks want with Earth. In Nation's original draft, it's basically the same, but he's a little bit more explicit about the idea. He says that the Daleks will use Earth as a generational spaceship to fly throughout the galaxy. It's a big mm. pulpy idea, isn't it? The sort of thing that we get more of later on in by the time we get to the Daleks' master plan, I guess. Mm. That big galactic space sort opera. Comic book ideas, version. yeah. And, and like you said, Richard, it, it doesn't really fit with the atmosphere of the early episode. It would be really interesting to know the exact timeline of the chats or meetings that Nation and Whittaker had in 64 and the writing of the first Dalek book, which Mm. is where we first get the rogue planet. The rogue planet in the Dalek book is actually Skaro rather than Earth. Mm. And Skaro is wandering through Earth's solar system and the Daleks decide to preemptively strike Earth because they think that Earth is likely to end up colonising or attacking Skaro. And so then that idea seems to migrate into Nation's outline for the invaders, which became Dalek Invasion of Earth. Mm. And it's interesting, there's mentions, I think, in the Dalek book of uh, Dalekenium, and Mm. there's a cross-section of the planet which talks about the layers. It has a sort of pseudo-scientific inclination in that book, which, uh, which I rather like. It's interesting, I was just trying to remember the order of the planetary flybys and things like that and trying to think when they, I guess it was the early 60s and that they at least sent stuff past the moon and maybe were stunned to realise that magnetic fields of planets were something that 
was unusual for Earth. Because it had been conjectured for, I think, a couple of decades, but I, I think it was pretty cutting-edge science in the 60s, mm. the stuff about the Earth magnetic core. Although, mm. in Nation's original draft, he's a bit wider the mark in the specifics. He talks about how the magnetic core is responsible for the spin of the planet. So right, by okay. extracting the magnetic core, the Earth will stop spinning and that will cause it to leave its orbit and then they can pilot it. Ooh, so it's a, okay. it's a sort of jarring sequence of yeah. oddities. What's, what's the explanation they give for why they are doing such a lot of this, the work, even though they're a very advanced technological race, the Dines, why they're In getting <laughs> using slave labour with wicker baskets to, to enact their plans? <laughs> well, there it, is something, isn't there? It's covered in the film, but I don't think it's measured. Really? Because in the TV version, it's all about the magma and the molten core of the planet. Mm. And then in the film version, it's switched to magnetism. Mm. And I think it's only in the film the Doctor says the Daleks are afraid of the magnetic properties of the Earth. So I, th right. I think it's David Whittaker who's noticed that there's a slight problem here and there's a hand wave explanation to try and join the together two very tonally different stories, as Richard mm. pointed out. He wanted this atmosphere of the post-apocalyptic scenario, but trying to take a, a sharp left turn into the shiny science fiction hmm. resolution of the story, I think it left me scratch my head even as a kid. Oh, well. Very surprising in, I think it was, is it episode five? Where suddenly, um, I think I had a note. I put, ah, oh, some Daleks at last. When yeah. We, when we finally get the, sort of after having had the spaceship stuff, and then, then you have about two episodes of running around in post-apocalyptic London, and then suddenly you get shiny Dalek control room with, we have the noise that we all know, so we all know and love. Yeah. Make, yeah. Is that his yeah. debut, in fact, control room noise? No, it's in it's in the original, but I don't know how he found it because he seems to have lost every other sound effect along the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because that's, that's the thing that really struck me watching it this time. I found it quite uncomfortable looking at times, and I'm not talking about the direction as such, so much as the <laughs> the atmosphere is quite... It's post-apocalyptic, but it's also a World War II yeah, story. It's very, so. very much informed by the Blitz. The interesting thing I've realised, and I'm thinking, was there something in the air at the time? They must have been filming this at the same time as they were filming It Happened Here, mm. which came out in, I think it finally made it onto screens in 65, but I believe it had been rumbling away because the filmmakers of that, it was a more or less sort of amateur project, wasn't it? As a mm. schoolboy director. You know, for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, it's this famous counterfactual history documentary movie about what would Britain be like under the Nazis. And it doesn't pull its punches in terms of collaborators and things like that. It's not interested in the an invasion point of view as the collaboration and how the population cope with it. And this was very much struck me as reminiscent of that, where you have the, the scene with the two freaky ladies in their hut in the woods and stuff like that. The scene with the where they're dragging the the carriage into the, into the tunnels in about mm -hmm. episode three, that film scene with the Daleks and the guards and everything yeah. like that. I mean, that, couldn't look at that without thinking of concentration camps and, you know, Mittelwerk where they built the V2s in the um, big factory under the mountain. It's jarring. It's not really what you expect to see in kiddie-friendly tea time well, I, think, I think that side of it reaches its peak, the things you're not expecting to see, when uh, Craddock meets up with his brother, is it, in episode five? Mm, and yeah. <laughs> sacrifices himself with bullets pumping into him while he strangles his brother to put him out of his misery. <laughs> mm. We don't see anything quite that unpleasant again until Caves of Androzani, and even then that's a shock in 1984. So mm, that yeah. was the one that startled me. Clearly there's something going on here that this is operating on a level which means something to various people involved. Obviously Terry 
maybe everybody, maybe even Richard Martin. I think it, when his direction's at its best in the film stuff, it's not when he's having to deal with shiny robots and spaceships, but when he's dealing with the more human side and the, and the what-if side. Hmm. A lot of the World War II stuff is David Whittaker. There's right. not a tremendous mm. amount in Nation's original draft that leans into the World War II stuff. I think Whitaker introduces the underground people listening to the propaganda, oh, the, yes, the, the yeah, radio broadcast and all that scene, kind of stuff. Yeah, There's yeah. quite a few bits and bobs that are Whitaker or Richard Martin punching things up a bit. Mm. Although Nation does suggest... Um, bombed out buildings and things like that for filming mm. locations. Well, mm. obviously, I guess London was still littered with them at the time, wasn't it? Mm. We've also got a Terry Nation plague in this. I mean, again, I, I don't know whether this is coming from Terry Nation, but it, he does love his plagues later on in Doctor mm. Who. Although it seems m- much worse than COVID because it's wiping out you know large chunks of the population. I can't remember, was it something like 70%? Whatever it was, it was a massive number of people dying in a short space of time. Yeah, but you don't hear anyone moaning about they're all over 90 or had several underlying health conditions, do you? <laughs> people just got on and united against a common enemy. They didn't have any time for conspiracy theories. Mm. Oh, take me back to those days. Take me forward to those days. <laughs> that's that's another interesting thing, talking about that very bit, the recap, as it were, the info dump we get in episode two, the way that is staged, so not to say necessarily the direction, but it's quite remarkable and I don't think we see anything like that in Doctor Who for the fact you have the two narrators talking filling in bits of the story as they're telling the Doctor and Susan and whichever way around it is I forget how the cast have broken up at that point but you've got two narrators filling in bits of the story for them and then you're intercutting that with different stuff going on on screen I was thinking, blimey, okay, we don't see anything like that in terms of ways of doing the narrative, doing that sort of info dump for a long time yeah, so I was a bit precise. What he just says is that Asia, Africa and South America were wiped out. Mm. Very precise chunks of the of the world. But I suppose, I suppose America and, and Europe must have been almost wiped out too, from what we see. Mm. Oh, wasn't this going to be called the Daleks in Europe at one point? Yeah, it was mooted. Was one of, mm. There's more kind of scientific nonsense as well, Giles, with that whole <laughs> box of, with, the, with the light and the magnets in episode oh, two. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's it, all David Whittaker, that. It sounded really good in the Target book when, <laughs> when I was... When I was about nine, I thought, oh, I see, this is brilliant stuff. But then <laughs> somewhere along the line, it doesn't quite work on telly. Mm. Gav, are you telling me that that brilliant Boyle's War joke is <laughs> is David Whittaker, not Nation? <laughs> I'm wondering who to blame for that. <laughs> yeah, in Nation's script, the Doctor's just talking about escaping and the Daleks come and let him out of the cell, mm. <laughs> if I remember Does it correctly. say, Dave, put some business in here? Yeah. <laughs> Something to do Something. with static electricity as you've got such a hard-on for it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> we get a foreshadowing because Craddock gets turned into a rover man there who's been their cellmate briefly and then before he meets his meets his untimely end he suddenly pops up as a rover man, doesn't he? In Nation's original draft, they come out of the cell and they go, Okay, Craddock, help us escape, and he turns around and he's a he's a zombie robo man. Oh, okay. I suspect we've all probably seen the movie many more times than we've seen the original yeah. TV version. Mm. But I can't work out whether, despite the robo men in this being so clunky and so on, I almost think I prefer them because they're much, a much more horrific concepts. And I, uh, now yeah. it being some some years since I've seen the movie. I can't remember whether the whether the movie really leans into the the horror side of the conversion or anything like that. You don't get much mm. horror. I mean, there's even a comedy scene where they're feeding themselves. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember the, the, I remember the comedy scene. That's Martins, the thing. I was, but... thinking, I was thinking, well, that, that, would jar, that would jar rather a lot with mm. anything else. I mean, you're talking about the Daleks. You know, mm. you really notice when they turn up later. 
Mm. And that was certainly true of the movie adaptation as well. We did a lot of analysis on the on the use of the props and we were able mm. to determine that a significant chunk of the shots of the Daleks in the first half of the film were pickup shots. Mm. So it seemed to us that they had shot a version of the movie where the Robomen were almost the prominent villains and then they looked at a rough cut mm. of the film or they were looking over the rushes and Gordon Fleming thought, do you know, mm. this Dalek movie probably needs some Daleks in it. And they <laughs> went back and, and shot yeah. some extra stuff to edit into the mm. battle scenes and some cutaways and all kinds of things. But it's funny as well, it, the posters for promoting the film yeah, um, the have Robomen front and centre, mm. yeah. And it's a really odd decision. I mean, this was the Dalek serial that created Dalek mania proper mm, yeah. at the Christmas of 64. To not push that as your main uh, marketing point is a really peculiar mm. choice. While we're on the subject of Daleks then, I mean, this may well have been the one that launched them, but they're less impressive on the whole here than they are on the first story, aren't they? It's not just mm. me. The voices, the the look, mm. that wonderful design has been watered down a bit with well-meaning but fussy additions like the dish and <laughs> the bumper that covers up the tricycle, all that sort of business. Mm. And the voices are very peculiar. Like, was that one of the things you listed, Richard, in, in what things they've forgotten how to do, that the voices are... Yeah. Well, it's not the last time they'll forget what the settings on the ring modulator are, but it's certainly quite... They've got longer to forget it between evil and day than they have yeah. between... Yeah, people go on and on and about day, but I don't think they're any better here than they are in day, are they? No. I think Gavin. the performances in Day are, are worse than, <laughs> yeah, the, than the rig modulation. Mm. Yes, you need yeah. both, don't you? The chase, the voices aren't great. Mission to the Unknown, they're as weak as in Dalek Invasion of Earth or, or nearly as bad. It's kind of only master plan that the real good 60s voices actually occur because mm. Power of the Daleks, they're a little bit weedy as well. Is my memory cheating then? Is there no way in which, especially in the early episodes of Invasion of Earth, that they're, they're particularly and bad. more hysterical? Yeah. And... I think it is their least effective in Dalek Invasion of Earth. They're, they're particularly mm. poor modulation and there's some weird things going mm. on. And it is it is the gap because episode five, when once you get to the stuff at the mine, the control room and stuff, that's better. In my recollection, that sounds more Dalek-y, whereas you definitely get the wobbly ones, the whole We Are the Masters of Earth and all of that stuff. That just sounds like somebody put an actor putting on a funny voice, We Are the Masters of Earth. It's like they've all been taking lessons from Barbara's impersonation. In (laughs) (laughs) If Barbara's impersonation didn't come until episode six. (laughs) And Gareth, a half-black, half-normal Dalek in episode two, I mean, which I've somehow never noticed before. And you told me (laughs) it's it's all that you ever see. But by episode three, it's gone and we just got the black one instead. Is it the same prop that's been resprayed over the weekend? Uh, yes, so that, that stripy Dalek is the Dalek Supreme. It should have just been a normal Dalek Supreme in episode two. Nation's original script actually has no mention of any Dalek of unusual colour in episode two. And the Dalek Supreme is first mentioned in episode five. But there's something odd going on in the occurrence of that prop. Mm. Um, there's photos of the afternoon's rehearsals for episode two that show that Dalek is all silver. So we know that it was painted in a rush in the late afternoon just before recording took place. Mm. So I suspect that the fact that the panels are are alternating Mm. was the quickest and most interesting thing they could do, perhaps. But uh, that, that stripy Dalek, for all intents and purposes, is the Dalek Supreme. 
and mm. it just mysteriously changes colours between episode two and three. And it's mm. only kind of fan wisdom that has given it the name Saucer Commander, which is <laughs> I think, how that, it yeah. tends to be marketed. And we just choose to believe oh. that the Saucer Commander disappears after episode know, yeah. two. I've only just remembered I've got one. I'm holding it up now. Uh, oh, there you oh, right. You'll have to imagine exactly. how wonderful one. that is. Yeah. That's oh, very lovely. visual for a yeah. podcast. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, We've all been allowed to bring in games for this one, listeners. Yeah, to the extent that it matters, which it doesn't matter at all, it does slightly confuse the story because it implies that the camp commandant has been on the saucer as well, so he gets about mm. a bit, doesn't he? Yes, exactly, because so he is specifically the commandant of the camp. The one that owns the Slither pet, yes. so mm. there's some food out for yes. it while he... Or maybe he didn't, and that's why it was so hungry. He's probably got one of those electronic feeders. And of course, talking of things that change between episodes, did you hear my great segue there? Talk about things that change <laughs> yeah. between episodes. This is going to be an epic if we. It would have been. It would have been a better like... segue. It would have been a better segue if you just carried on talking instead of yes. pausing to say, "Did you hear my great segue?" <laughs> <laughs> it's always it's always good to have somebody who enjoys their own contribution. Look, for anybody who doesn't know me, that wasn't me being genuinely impressed and boasting about the quality of the segue. I was ashamed by it. So I decided to hang a lampshade on it just to. Yeah. We need to get our money's worth out of Gav. Gav. What happened with the slither? Why didn't they just paint half of it black and half of it silver during the <laughs> There were originally at least three slithers in the in the script. Nation wrote them as a pack of animals roaming around the abyss, as it was known in the script. Mm. And yeah, Shawcraft had a crack at it and it went to screen and they thought, no, this is no good. So they, they redesigned it before the following week's recording. But in the interim, a journalist turned up and interviewed uh, Nick Mason. Evans? Is that his name? Nick Evans, yeah, sorry. Isn't no, Nick Mason from Pink Floyd? Yes. Mm. <laughs> I don't think Pink Floyd were involved. I'm not Richard, sure. Richard, don't cut joke. that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> so there was Nick Mason, Roger Waters, and the Slither were interviewed. <laughs> And they, there was a lot of publicity. It was very popular. And there's a r- rather kind of awkward memo. Somebody says to the Doctor Who production office, Oh, tell us more about the Slither. Now you teased its introduction. The end of this episode, everyone's enormously excited. We cannot <laughs> wait to see how this develops. And uh, will we see it in future? And uh, Verity Lambert says, uh, The future of the Slither is yet to be decided. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> In an alternative universe, we have Slithermania taking hold of the nation's children. Yeah. I mean, it was written into the original draft of the Daleks Invasion Earth movie. Mm -hmm. It was going to be a metallic Slither, which I think tied into the whole magnetism ending of the story. Mm -hmm. I don't know why they cut it. That would have been great fun to have a Mm. metal Slither roaming around the mine, picking people off. Because the Slither is is arguably Doctor Who's first monster. I mean, other than robots and other humanoids. The Dalek Invasion of Earth is, is an enormous series of firsts for Doctor Who. It sets up a load of stuff we now all take for granted. The the invasion storyline, grotesque monsters. The the fact that Doctor is not just passive, he he actively Mm. decides Mm. to take a heroic role and try to... To dare to stop them. To dare to Mm. stop them, because (laughs) most of the futuristic stories have followed the same pattern as the historicals, is that the Doctor turns up and he just sort of happens to be there and he he Mm. has to extricate himself because he's been bribed to by the bloke in Marinus or the Sensorites have taken his lock. Yes, okay, you could argue that the whole stopping the Dalek invasion is purely for want of an oxyacetylene torch. (laughs) But, I mean, again, that's another contribution of of Whitaker. I think he writes it as um, 
the doctor says to the Dalek, something like, I'm going to put myself against you and defeat you. And uh, I think it's changed either in rehearsals or on the day, uh, either by Richard Martin or Hartnell or some collaboration. And, and he makes it an aside to Ian where he says, I'm going to pit our wits together and defeat them. Is that when the Dalek says, I can hear Yeah, stop, I can, I can, I hear, can you. hear you. <laughs> I have heard. I am two and a half feet away. I can hear you. <laughs> I can hear you. Well, they sound quite worked out how the Daleks speak, have they? Because it, it, this one's using I a lot, which of course they don't later on, do they? Mm. They always talk in the collective plural. I, I don't like that sort of hive mentality. I don't like mm. this this thing that was introduced later. They, they're all sort of connected via a, a telepathic network, and if one knows it, they all know it. And I much prefer the idea you can get isolated units, and they some have a greater predilection for exploring or killing or doing whatever, and they've all got slightly distinct personalities. Mm. I think that's much more interesting. I mean, they're all living beings inside. They should be... Yes. It should be distinct. That's possibly mm. so, some so you, scope for that, isn't there? Yeah. Mm. You make an interesting point, Gav, in the Dalek invasion of Earth is the serial that launches the Daleks. It's the thing that, I guess, gives them a future and, and, and everybody is, in Britain is is really taken with them as a result of this story. Given that, you know, we've said, you know, they're less impressive visually, they, they don't seem to have the right voices and then they're hardly in it. But clearly, regardless of all of that, they make a huge impression. Mm. Yeah, it does make you wonder whether, it, you know, all the differences we're talking about between coming back to Richard Martin versus Douglas Camfield, would it have mattered? Would it have made any difference? Is the iconography of the Daleks all that you need, the flying saucers and the props in studio? Does effective camera blocking make any difference to their uh, relative success? I think the other thing that the Daleks uh, Invasion of Earth does first is tell you that the baddies are never dead both retrospectively and in the future, mm. uh, a single line of dialogue. And if you've had a critical or financial success, then they'll be back no matter how uh, <laughs> extensively they were wiped out the last time. OK, can I just yeah. mention something that has always annoyed me because I'm an idiot. I mean, you mentioned earlier, with is it in the Dalek book where the idea first comes in that Earth in the future <clears throat> might be a threat to the Daleks? We're here, of mm. course, we're as close to the present day as, damn it, they seem to confuse themselves a bit about where this story is positioned in relation to the, the first story, the dead planet. Mm. Um, they're clearly much more technologically advanced, these Daleks, for the simple fact that the entire plot of the first story is that they can't move outside their city. Now yeah. they can. They hand wave it away with a single line of dialogue, but the explanation they choose is that those Daleks must be in the future. from the future. Yes. Which means they've, if you think devolved. about it for a second, you realise they've devolved, which is obviously not what they're intending. Any idea how that confusion came about? Obviously, nobody cared because they they rightly assumed that anybody in the audience who would think about it as deep mm. as I have for the last forty years mm. isn't worth their consideration. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it, that a nation of people would who are allowed to freely roam throughout a continent would choose um, <laughs> to limit themselves to a, to a single country, uh, and yet you know this seems to be what's happened. Enough, Stasi. I asked Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> No, but it, it, yeah, I, I mean, Terry Nation, he was very pleased with himself in, in the subsequent interview where he's, he says, I made use of the fact that the Doctor Who's about time travel and I could set it anywhere. So I just set it before the Daleks were defeated without any consideration to those consequences. But there's actually an interesting thing to explore if somebody wanted to go into that. But like in human history, if you oh. go from like Greek or Roman civilization to the, the Middle Ages, mm. you could argue that society has frequently mm. progressed backwards and forwards. And and maybe, yeah, maybe the Daleks lost the height of their supremacy and they, they became insular and retrospective and held a referendum and they stayed on Skaro. Mm. 
<laughs> it's um, it's interesting. Just it's interesting because this is ostensibly is is sort of the first time they come back to Earth, and we we come back to you know we get we get teased with the idea that this could be the present day. Although I suppose they've teased that in Reign of Terror, haven't they? Yeah. And then it kind of makes sense that the first time they come back to a recognisable Earth, and then then you confront them with the fact they're in the future and they've got the Daleks up against them. But again, it's it's odd that they just done the Planet of Giants was the serial before. Because you're yeah. trying to pull that off, it's quite a clever idea that you know, we're back on Earth at last. Oh, but hang on, the Daleks are here. Right. And it, it undercuts it. It's not the past. We're not an inch tall. This time mm. we finally... <laughs> yes. Well, yes. If you're going for a sort of comedy rule of three in terms of what's going to go wrong this time, you really only need one <laughs> problem. It, it's either the future or there are Daleks. So yes. both seems like overkill. Mm. That wasn't the point you were making. Maybe it works, maybe it works for the rule of three, as you say. I just realised I was undercutting it myself when I realised that they, <laughs> that they pulled the same stunt in the Reign of Terror as well. Because I was thinking, well, why did they do it in Planet yeah. of Giants and then revisit it here? But then the fact they've done it three times already, maybe it's not quite such a... Such a thing. So along the lines that Gavin was saying about this is a story that has a lot of firsts in, that's the reason that I like it. I feel like I need to say we I like it before we move yeah. on because I yeah, yeah. got so bogged down in the whole Richard Martin of it all <laughs> that I may have given the impression I think it's execrable. But it's got that novelty value and that sense of unlimited possibility that a lot of the first couple of series have, mm. which doesn't, isn't always a winning factor. I mean, the Keys of Marinus thinks it can do anything, but it doesn't. And superficially, it's um, it's not dissimilar to this. It's it's overreaching itself by having whole new settings and each week, and the production is really struggling to keep up with the imagination of the writer. But the thing it does, not so much for the first time, but almost for the last time, is show us a world so utterly ruined, where there's been death on a scale that most Doctor stories can't even begin to contemplate, mm. where the villains have already won. The destruction, the hopelessness, the desolation, it's... Not something that you could really imagine fitting into a Doctor Who story. Most writers for the rest of the series don't try mm. because there becomes an established structure for what sort of story you can tell in four or even six episodes. Mm. Whereas Terry doesn't know that there are such restrictions, so he just tells whatever story he wants. And if he wants to say, oh yes, in 200 years' time the Earth is almost destroyed and seven-eighths of the population were wiped out, he will because he's not thinking beyond this paycheck <laughs> and that and i think that level of ambition rather than the simple production ambition of something like marinus or the web planet that ambition conceptually or thematically that's, mm. that makes it work for me that means it still works despite the fact it's that a great way of him having his cake and eating it because a common frustration with invasion stories is the ease of which the aliens are defeated mm. and that ease is felt more when you've also seen the start of the invasion. So you get this cataclysmic world-changing event and its solution within a very short period of storytelling time. Yeah, and we may be coming and... into that later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no Whereas a nation has this brilliant thing of just turning up when humanity's already lost. Yeah. So you get the end of the story and you don't get the beginning. Mm, and that's yeah. a, it's a really brilliant way of doing it. Yep. If you did it any later, if you did it after Series 3, really, it would seem extraordinarily daring and avant-garde and sort of world-changing thing that if the production team decided to go with it at all, you, it would be the sort of apocalyptic thing you'd need at the end of an era. Mm. But now here, it's just this week's wacky adventure. Where is he this week? <laughs> is he an inch high? No! <laughs> so seven billion people have died. Mm. So, so, so what, I mean, one thing that I, I know about the film version of this is that Peter Cushing was ill and so he's hardly in it. 
And yet, watching this this time round, the one thing that's apparent is that Bill Hartnell's hardly in this one either. So it's almost as if, how much would you have had to rewrite it for Peter Cushing not to be in it, given that the Doctor's a very peripheral character to the whole thing? Yes. Except, I suppose, this this business of I'm going to fight the Daleks, and, and he, he turns up at the end to sort of lead at least one of the charges, but a lot of the time, not really. There's two things there. That First of all, the William Hartnell wasn't really written out of the episode in which he doesn't feature. By a miraculous coincidence, he wasn't meant to feature in that episode much, so when he injured his back, he was dropped by... Uh, couple of robo men and he had to go to hospital and have scans done only a very small amount of uh, rewriting was required to get him out of that episode a couple of lines right. of dialogue were given to susan and david so that's a weird coincidence mm. that he wasn't scheduled to be in that episode much well, anyway is, that is the one with the worst Why? padding in terms of them spending all that time underground being menaced by a um came in stock footage and um... yes <laughs> Should have. It was originally a sort of regressed underground sewer dwelling humans right. uh, in Nations version, and I think okay. I think it was Whitaker changed them to alligators. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Even more grimness that would have been in there in that case. Yeah, mm. I, th- I, I guess the speed of the evolutionary process, because mm. Whitaker's uh, dedication to scientific <laughs> accuracy <laughs> meant yeah. that uh, he objected to mm. humans evolving that quickly when yeah, there yeah. wasn't a magnetic field involved. Mm. But the other thing you were saying about the Doctor's proactivity in the end, and weirdly, if, if it takes all the three versions that we know of, of Nation's original draft and Whitaker's rewrite, and then the movie version, there's a stage improvement in the tightening of that ending because nation originally wrote it that ian basically saved the world completely by accident yeah he he inadvertently sabotaged the uh, dalek's cable car system that was supposed to deliver the bomb mechanism and whitaker altered that to make it so that ian knowingly messed with what whitaker changed it to a bomb capsule Hmm. And then that was changed again, presumably also by Whitaker, though maybe Milton Sabotsky for the movie version, where the Doctor sits down, Doctor Who I should say, sits down and formulates hmm. a plan with a map of the mine workings and says, what we'll do is intercept the bomb here. So what had been complete luck on Ian's part in the TV version turned into Doctor Who's plan. And also, Doctor Who fed that information to Ian's replacement, Tom, and gave Tom enough information that he could then act. Mm. There's a nice progression in this sort of honing of the storyline to make it uh, less and less contrived with each stage. Yes, because in this one, you've, though you, although Ian kind of knows what he's doing, he doesn't know that the Doctor has also got a, an attack going at the same mm. time. So mm. it is somewhat coincidental that those two things line up. Yeah. I do like, when there's that huge explosion, I do like the fact that you see this kind of massive bit of stock footage, you know, (laughs) explosion, and then it cuts back to Tyler and he says, it's unbelievable. And I think, well, you can say that again. And the doctor (laughs) says, it's unbelievable. (laughs) And then Jenny says, it's over. But it isn't. There's still nine minutes to go. <laughs> you know, and we see in this maybe the the genesis of the RTD goodbye sequences that where you, where you know almost saying goodbye to the companion is you know it's more almost more of the episode than the uh, the denouement with the Daleks. Well, I wanted to come on to this because um yeah, bless Caroline Ford, but she's maybe not the strongest actress, and yet I was surprised you know watching this yeah I was I was surprised that they wove this through fairly convincingly for you know again for tv of that era aimed at kids they give enough time to have i presume that's whitaker again doing rewrites knowing that she's knowing it's that about she's 50 going. 50 
Right. There's there's a decent chunk of nation in that end scene. I did hear the story that they they packed off William Hartnell and Callum for went and spent a weekend with Terry Nation and his wife. I believe mm. I read somewhere so that they could discuss things a bit because it is quite it's fairly by the standards of companion departures and this is the first one and mm. I think it's always this thing of putting ourselves in the mindset at the time. She's his granddaughter. There's no question about that. We don't know any of the you know weird stuff to do with time boards or anything like that. Uh, so far as we know, this is an old man saying goodbye to his granddaughter, and it's the first first companion departure that we've had. And it you know, they do lay a lot of groundwork for it through the six episodes. Yeah. So it, it doesn't. It's, it's not that Leela suddenly decided to pair off with Android <laughs> at, the, um, <laughs> at the end of Invasion of Time. It's not like every other one ever. No, well, pretty, pretty much, yes. Yeah, you either. I guess Joe Grant being possibly the only yeah, other one that's yeah. really well written in that regard. It's another first in the nature of the show is that it proves that none of the regulars are uh, irreplaceable. Yeah. It mm. shows that the turnover of the cast can lead to the longevity of the show. And also, funnily enough, there's a weird quirk in an earlier meeting with it. Verity Lambert had discussed replacing William Hartnell because there was an issue with the contracts and mm. they were... They were trying to get the show renewed. They couldn't nail down an agreement that everyone was happy with, that they were going to renew for 13 weeks, and the regulars weren't happy with 13 weeks. Mm. So there was a point raised, well, can we get rid of all the regulars, including <laughs> William Hartnell, and we'll just um, we'll just turn over the whole cast and see how that goes. Blimey. Okay. That's, early in. That's a fascinating what-if, definitely. Anything anyone else wants to say before we put this one to bed? It's a great introductory story for the new companion of Jenny. Yes. <laughs> I, I think she's really strong and really works. Interesting headgear. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's really odd. I mean, we know we know all the context behind it, but it's quite noticeable that she is written as a replacement companion, and it's a good role. It's a strong role. She's got mm. lots of character-defining moments, and she just buggers off somewhere at the end and doesn't join the mm. TARDIS crew. I really like her as a character. And she doesn't get any payoff at all, does she? No. Her payoff is she joins the TARDIS in a parallel universe Mm. in Dimension 156. Yeah. She gets to call it. She gets to say, it's over. But yeah, after that, that's that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, it's it's over for her, but she doesn't know there's nine minutes left. (laughs) That's the problem with her in a nutshell. She hasn't got the big picture. Yes, because they keep what's-his-name around for the last sequence, don't they? The uh, the rebel leader. Yeah, the other other thing I was going to just briefly mention was we get all this location filming and so on but it's it's odd because and again that contributes to the feeling that the Daleks aren't quite there for a lot of it the fact that so much of the location filming is is silent or <laughs> and and just as a sound just as bongos just as yeah. bonkers soundtrack but mm. quite interesting because that was you know this is a genuine francis chagrin um chagrin whatever however you <laughs> pronounce it it was you know like a bona fide avant-garde composer of the time it was quite a big cheese by all accounts. I mean, I, 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 maybe I'm alone in this, but I think I think the music really doesn't work. Is it specially mm. commissioned, Charles? Yes, yeah. So far as I go, right. yeah, yeah. It's, so it's not it, it's not like them just taking some bella bars. There are some already out some there. scenes it works where it's designed to create an unsettling atmosphere. When it's put over mm. action scenes, it doesn't work in the slightest and just creates no, a pathetic. No, no. It yeah, does, um, gi- it does give you true. this give all these scenes a bit of a Keystone Cops kind of feel. <laughs> 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 The, where it works, where it's underscoring foreboding, fine. Mm. I think it's also too low in the mix. There's 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 loads of points where mm. you can just barely hear it, and it's almost jarring because you're not quite feeling it. You're sort of struggling to hear it. Mm. But the action scenes, particularly, mm. I mean, 
Richard Martin needs all the help he can get to summon up some kind of emotion, mm. tension during those uh, action scenes. And that low-key, slow, plodding mm. music just completely destroys it. I like the Dalek Invasion of Earth and I will watch it any day of the week. Hmm. But it's incredibly slow and it, and it when you felt the speed of the movie version, you, you're not fully prepared for the pace of six episodes. I always tend to, with, with these really early ones, try and watch it episodically rather than you know, maybe <laughs> one or two one or two episodes at a time yep. max hmm. and then take a break. I wouldn't I wouldn't try and do this on that, that always helps in terms of pace and narrative, but it's not always absolutely essential in terms of glossing over continuity errors is it? Mm. but um <laughs> as it is here yeah i mean the only other thing i was going to draw attention to is the fact that the daleks go out of their way to design spaces that ian can fit into in the original dalek story of course he fits into a dalek prop in in this he's got his nice little sort of void underneath the ramp which i can't honestly see any reason why they, they put that there other than it's a nice space for him to hide in, and then later on he gets into that capsule thing that, that's supposed to be holding the bomb. And yeah, trapped door under his trousers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, c- can I take this opportunity to direct your listeners to the uh, forthcoming Dalek Combat Manual publication, which oh, yes. has a very beautiful cutaway of the Dalek bomb capsule, showing Ooh. not only the cavity in which Ian hides, but also all the exciting gubbins in the <laughs> compartment above, which is <laughs> presumably we, ne- the we never we never of- have. Commercial plugs on this podcast. It's just merely an observation about a, a relevant <laughs> illustration that I'm aware of. I and, don't know who the authors or we, illustrators are. Where could we find that? Which, what, what publisher is <laughs> from? Available from all unethical online retailers such as Amazon and any ethical ones you can find if they exist. I'm not sure. Uh, bookshop.org, yeah. I would recommend. Cutting in your local retailer. It sounds like there's no excuse for not getting a copy. <laughs> Absolutely not. I think it's yeah. out in February, but I'm not sure. Yes, it's like this podcast. We always say it's available from all good outlets and a fair few bad ones as well. <laughs> mm. I've got one last little question for Gareth, yeah, since he's our expert on the spot. Another thing that fandom has very much embraced, all of the vetoed posters and <laughs> all yes. that. Is any of that stuff in, in the scripts? Is that a... No, it's not, it's not in the scripts. The mythology is that it's an in-joke for mm. design department drawings, ah, cost-saving measures. Right. Although Richard Martin contradicts this somewhat. He says they were stamped with omit, but I okay. think that's the story, is that vetoed mm. was the idea that if it was too expensive, you didn't get to do it in Doctor right. Who. Hmm. It didn't make any sense to me when I was young, and it doesn't make any sense to me on screen now. Hmm. I just like the idea that the Daleks vetoed a tricycle in the, um, yes. in, the in the transport museum. It, it makes yeah. sense to me on some... They've got a thing against elephants and tricycles. Yes, That's right. Mm. If, it's, if it isn't under their skirts, they don't want to know about it. Mm. Mm. Follow that. Well, <laughs> Everyone is avoiding the punchline there. We'll just leave that. <laughs> so let, let, let's move on to Revolution of the Daleks. Written by Chris Chibnall, directed by Lee Haven Jones, famous previously for Spyfall Part 2 and Orphan 55. Only Part 2? Yes, yes. Oh. Uh, <coughs> it's, uh, part 1's directed, it's part of a different block. Fair enough. Richard Martin. No, it was, uh, <laughs> it was Jamie Magnus Stone, I think. It feels like, to me, like Series 12 has never happened watching the re- revolution of the Daleks. Really? I mean, it, How do you achieve this mental state? What's the secret? It feels like we're back in the world of revolution at the end of series 11. I mean, of course, 
you know, the Doctor's in prison. That's happened at the end of Series 12. But it but it feels like the spirit of this, is this to me, it feels like a classic Chris Chibnall story from Series 11. It's quite like the Arachnids. It's quite like Resolution. It's a bit, I suppose it's a bit like Spyfall Part 1, which, okay, that, that that's the previous New Year's special. But it, it doesn't feel like we've, we, we're addressing all, all the cataclysmic things that have happened subsequent to that. I, th- I mean, I found it entertaining. I thought it was a decent thing for New Year's Day. I wasn't, I wasn't upset having watched it, and I quite liked it. But equally, I was half expecting that we'd be digging at least a little bit into some of the stuff, and we didn't get any of that. I wonder what you thought of it. It was enormously entertaining for a, for a decent percentage of it. My attention wanders a bit when the, when the pace drops, but I was, I was conscious there were times when I was uh, hmm. not fully invested. I might have watched it on one and a half speed if it was uh, available. <laughs> I think I would have enjoyed it more if it had been 10, 15 minutes shorter, mm-hmm. which is a, an odd thing to feel with new Doctor Who. Yeah, well, I found it entertaining enough. It's yes, I don't know. I quite, I quite enjoyed it at the time. I, I I agree. It felt a bit flabby at times. Whilst whilst having this thing of you know what we picked up on earlier and you know, that that you in, instigate is the word I'm after an invasion scenario or similar, and then have to then have to wrap it up in very short space of time, or is you know slightly unsatisfactory. I felt like it almost concerned itself too much with. With what happened, what had happened in the last series, okay. and kind of referencing things like I know, I didn't need to know hear the, <laughs> the name Koshamas did not need to um, <laughs> cross cross my eardrums ever again. And the, the idea that they I know I don't know maybe it's a fanish thing that you know that we we are paranoid about what they the public the general public will make of our little show, and therefore you know when when we feel like there's egregious info dumps and references and continuity of stuff that has happened and you think well that's not really necessary so i almost felt like it kind of spent a bit too much time reiterating that kind of thing and i think possibly for me from the plot journey i kind of felt like well hang on didn't we have the doctor's self-doubt about who she was didn't we go through all of that in the timeless children to mm-hmm. some extent and i unless i'm unless i'm misremembering it it's obviously a few months since i've uh, since i've seen it I watched it a couple of times at the time. At the time, I was quite surprised in that scene where the Doctor's self doubt that Ryan sat down and kind of told her how to feel about it. Mm. it- I'd have taken it better coming from Graham, probably. And I know there's there's partly the the thing of okay, you you think okay, older male character, perhaps more paternalistic. You don't want to necessarily. Yeah, that that's the it. thing. But, it's, but it's, just, just I, the I, fact I, that we know that he's had a he's been through the mill. More. Exactly, and we've seen that. That was it. Is that Ryan yeah. doesn't seem to have the emotional maturity to be lecturing anyone, mm. let alone yeah. a thousand-year-old being. Yeah, I can see why that would bother you, but I don't think I don't think it's worth worrying about it on that level because that would require Chris to think of these as real people, these characters. But they're not they're just pieces <laughs> on a board. He either realised that he hadn't given Ryan anything to do in the episode, so gave him that, or alternatively he structured the whole thing around that being the thing that Ryan got to do in this episode, in which case Mm. it's a sign that they are just interchangeable characters. It's unfortunate that this characterisation of the Doctor seems to be an insecure, often ineffectual version of the character, to an extent that we haven't seen for quite a long time, and that the optics, when when applied to the the casting decision that accompanied Mm. it, aren't always great. I don't feel I know anything about Ryan and his ability to 
cope with these situations. Mm, in just, I just, I just feel like people. we've been told again and again that all three of these companions are one, <laughs> wonderful people. They're the best of humanity, like all modern Who companions have to be. Mm. And it's, I mean, it's always a bit of a stretch. It's always a difficult task for the writers to take ordinary shop girl Rose and show us why she is something special. But that's why they're, that's why they're getting paid the big bucks. And Russell pulls it off. Things that leap out at me are are in the performance as much as the broad brushstrokes of, of characterization. Mm. I think it's subtle. I think there's a solidity to the characterization that an actor will pick up on. And that will work in tandem, the writing and the acting. The writing of those initial scripts, the way the actor responds, and the way they're written in subsequent scripts. And I think under the previous two showrunners, no matter what you may think of any individual companions... <laughs> There's a sort of solidity to them. You kind of mm. felt you knew who and what they were. And here, they just... I'm sorry. They, it's the same problem I had after when we came on here to talk about the first episode two or three what, years the ago. The woman who fell to earth. Yeah, the, and I just was slightly numb from how thin everything felt. The I thinness think... of the characterization, the thin plotting, the underwritten dialogue. And it, it hasn't really changed. This is... this For me, this episode was one of the most successful we've had in the 13th Doctor era, a just nice big shiny boom bang a bang adventure for a bank holiday, I think. Mm. But I wouldn't mm. disagree with any of the criticisms you've mm. you've made. Uh, well, you talk about it being it might have been better 15, 20 minutes shorter. I think that will mostly have been the beginning because one thing I thought about the plot that was very peculiar: the Doctor being in prison didn't go anywhere. We knew it was the Jadoon, did we, at the end of the last series? Yes, yeah. but that's just a sort of last-minute plot twist, wasn't it? Are we meant to infer that it was crimes as Joe Martin's doctor? Or I've no of... idea because I was waiting yes, for an explanation yeah, in this the... episode, unless I just mm. wasn't paying attention last time. And we not only didn't well, get an explanation, but we also yeah. it also didn't add anything to this episode except delaying her entry into the story. Well, except that that contrivance was necessary to allow the other characters to achieve something and get to a certain state before the Doctor turns back up, but it didn't. Mm. They go off um, investigating on their own as we've. Been told they're capable of doing because they're the best of humanity but they get nowhere when we get scenes like their first attempt to confront the donald trump pastiche with the dull name yeah robinson yeah they turn up they stand there in the line they they ask him some questions he tells them to clear off and they walk away saying this isn't as easy as it <laughs> as the doctor mm. makes it look and i can't work out if this is supposed to be funny that they're so utterly incompetent or if, he's, or if we're just desperately filling space because he's managed to get enough money for 70 minutes but doesn't know what to do with it. So anyway, by the time the Doctor turns up, nothing has been achieved. The only thing we've got, you could cut down the important information we've got in those first 15 minutes to just the scenes that don't involve any of the regulars. It's all been set up with the, the ancillary characters, mm. which could have been done in, with much more economy in a pre-title sequence, and then we could have got hit the ground running. <laughs> it had a sort of echo of the Christmas invasion where the Doctor yeah. was held back. I think Holding it was off. supposed to. I mm. assume it was supposed to feel like that, that mm. post-regenerative yeah. thing. But, but you've never got that sense of triumph of her turning up and no. standing in a no, it, No, exactly. That would have been great. All the things you could have done with that time, mm. learn more about the characters, have some comedy. The irony, since this is a companion departure episode and Ryan's ostensible reason for departing and he was the driving force of the departure was, mm. you know, my friends need me. And yet, did we see, you know, I quite like no. some... <laughs> I, I quite like Ryan's mate who, when he turned up in um, Can You Hear Me? And I, I thought, well, that would have been quite fun if, if we'd actually seen Ryan with his mates and had fitted back into society. Yeah, and, um, you know, into yeah like the, when Rose uh, parting the ways. Mm. Yeah. 
that you you have that period where she's in the cafe with her mum and you know ordinary life that that was quite a sort of negative return to mm. earth but you could have had a situation where ryan went back and was really sort of heartened by his reconnection mm. to his people and liking his home life and appreciating mm. the, the differences and that tug of staying at home would have been really nice i'm not going to say show don't tell but yeah <laughs> yeah Please. and i did i did feel bradley and you know again i did feel he was very underserved in this when that scene you know that made me think about that 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 particular scene with him and the doctor because it feels like although we know that Ryan has a lot of Jodie's first series was you know we had Ryan's issues were being addressed to some extent and his, his yeah. issues with his dad and so on and that kind yeah. of came to a conclusion so we kind of know he's been with but it's again it's that solidity of the writing and so on that it doesn't feel like you know and I'm sure that um Toyson is a decent actor from other things and so on but it, you've never really felt that he carries that with him and yet with you know with Bradley Walsh you felt okay Graham's been through stuff it's kind of he manages to convey it even when he's not being given a great deal of, of stuff in the script I, I'm wondering whether it was an availability issue whether whether Bradley because obviously he's being pulled in 10 directions at once whether he just wasn't I did read that somewhere. Around to do, I don't know if that was just a rumour. To do much stuff or something. I mean, it's interesting, you know, that the character of Ryan, he's, he's supposed to be dyspraxic. That's his big thing. Mm. And there's elements of that through series 11 and 12. Mm. You know, and we remember right at the end that that was when we first saw him. And, and mm. so he gets a sort of ending scene that's a bit like his, his initial scene. But it's not sort of highlighted in the story itself. You might have thought, perhaps, that either there might be a big sort of... He's either learnt to live with his dyspraxia or something in the course of the story that comes to a, to a big climax. It's, we sort of forget for the for the 70 minutes of the story that that was ever an issue, and then it's only highlighted again in the sort of two-minute code. If only end. it was just mm. for the 70 minutes of this story that it was forgotten. It's been forgotten <laughs> since since episode two, series one. Yeah. Goodness Is sake. it... And when I it's mean, brought back, it's as a ostentatious callback, hmm. designed to make you think, "Oh, is this a flashback?" Oh no, it's still you know hmm. it's now. But which I think is shameless, considering how it's been completely brushed under hmm. the carpet since, ever since. We had the scene where he I, was playing basketball in flashback yes. and couldn't make the hoop, hmm. and then he had a perfectly basketball-sized thing that he had to put in a basketball hoop no, analog. One of us has a false memory. I'm not yeah, sure. We, had, we, did have some, we did have something like that, and we had the, yeah. we had the business. In the, the Cyberman episode, he had to he had yes. to do a, a basketball-sized bomb into a... Mm. It was a Cyberman's face in the shape Cyber of a hoop. hoop. <laughs> and, I, um, I take it back. I sit corrected. Mm. But, uh, at the risk of getting too serious, I don't know anything about dyspraxia. Mm. And presumably this isn't something that... It would just try harder at and no. Well, no, beat it. No, I mean, what is the arc story? Is that it, he overcomes it, he succeeds what? despite it. I mean, if it was dyslexia or depression or, or any other mm. kind of impairment, surely it should be that he can succeed despite it rather mm. yes. than... Yeah, I think so. His arc story is that he loops back to mm. riding a bike and, and he still can't do it. Mm. Well, if that's the condition that he lives with his whole life, of course he mm. still can't yeah. do it. To be fair... That's quite nice, the fact that it loops back and shows <laughs> that nothing's changed in that area of his life. Mm. But if we had a real feeling that everything else about him has changed, and as you say, he succeeded despite mm. that. I was, very glad, I was very glad that the very last moment of that shot was him falling off again. Um, yes. It would have been really, yeah. really cheap if, as, as you say, I don't, I don't know anything about it, but I assume it's a lifelong condition and there aren't any magic cures or anything like that. But I, mm. So I guess the thing is just... 
and I can't remember how much of it was. So was it ever written really that he didn't really try things because of it? That would yeah. feel like the arc, and that would be the yeah. What then... what what you want is for for him to be presented with situations that he knows he's not capable of because mm. of his condition, and he finds a different way. Yeah. Or may not, to may not solve be capable those of, problems. and he thinks around it, or he yeah. attempts things that he he think he thinks his way around them. Yeah, yeah. That would have been yeah. a good way of showing why he's the best of humanity, how adaptable mm. and he is. His lateral thinking, for example. Because yeah. he could give the, the basketball-shaped thing to Yaz and she could throw it through the basketball-hooped-sized object or whatever, and then <laughs> because he doesn't have to be a brilliant basketball player, he never is going to be, but mm. you know, maybe his mates can do that bit and then he can do something else instead. I, I don't know. Mm. Can I say something else? Why not? I just, want to, about, <laughs> I just want to amuse about something that's... Um, oh, God, we're going on to them. <laughs> yeah, we seem to have a lot more to say about the, the companions mm. and their valedictory moments than we did about mm. Susan's foreman. Mm. Now, uh, this is something that's puzzling me. Uh, you talked, Gav, about um, whether or not these small-scale stories were being written small-scale uh, just because Chris knows he has to save money or just because that's his house style. And Giles, you mentioned how odd it is that he misses the opportunity to show us exactly what the commands have missed back home in those 10 months. Mm. If we saw something of what they've missed, why they choose to stay. I feel like most of these stories nowadays have very small casts. There are very few characters, not in a, in a sense that suggests to me it's disciplined writing. But we used to get a lot of ancillary characters to make them mm. to populate in these worlds. Mm. Not just in the old Who sense of a funny character popping for one scene to do something amusing, but in the Russell T. Davis sense of it uh, adding to the feeling of a lived-in world a real environment the grounds are companions i mean I suppose when we arrive on an alien planet and it's sparsely populated we might just think well that's the planet of the week but it's when we come back to earth that it just seems weird it, it just feels wrong to me i think it creates a weird cognitive dissonance for me and i can't work out if it's just chris's writing he doesn't write a scene or even as moffat or russell would have done a, um, a montage of scenettes of the companions doing their business mm. back on earth it would have needed to hire a few extra people and give them the old line of dialogue here and there. Now, can he not afford that anymore? Or does he just not mm. think that way as a writer? Can't decide. We get those little scenes, don't we? Doesn't, doesn't Graham have poker mates that he was once shown playing? Yeah, yeah. Are they kind of uh, like Pokemon? No, Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, he's got a pet Pikachu. Um, we saw that, did we? I said yes. No, no, and it would have been I, quite but, effective to have then had shown those two getting on with getting back into but, their lives, and while Yaz was like... still doing her suspect board thing in the TARDIS. We, we get those scenes with, uh, you know, at, at the borders. There's at least a couple of scenes where the Daleks start exterminating, but we don't really get what we might expect is there to be a little cameo maybe at that point where we might get to know the characters so that when they get exterminated mm. we go oh that's a shame I rather liked them instead of which we just see people getting exterminated which is shocking enough but you mm. know we're not particularly invested in them when it happens I think Linda with a Y the, yeah. the archetype mm. for making us care and then making us hate the Daleks for them and the archetype Chibnall version of that is from the woman who fell to earth where yeah, we yeah. have a cutaway mm. scene of the old man on the phone yeah. looking forward to seeing his Grandchildren. Oh, of course, yes. Just the absolute bare minimum of emotional manipulation to make us like him. With the guy who drives the truck, don't we? With the quick, let's pan down and show his show some pictures of his family, so we know this is a, so we feel something for him as a real person, kind of thing. Yeah, I suppose. Oh, yeah. I suppose. And in terms of like extra characters, we have this, so far as I can figure out, fairly redundant chain of custody thing at the at the start, and it, it's a writing choice. So I guess you can't always say, oh, well, he didn't need to do that because what would you done differently? But we didn't need to see the melted down Dalek get confiscated by woman one from whatever secret security services, whatever, handed over to driver. Who 
who gets drugged by a tea lady. Was there a tea lady on every bypass in the area? Or was yeah. that no, you, do, you do wonder, yes, exactly. <laughs> Must have been, yeah. It's an Anthony Ainley plot from the 1980s, I think. Mm. Mm. You could have just structured that pretty much as starting off with Chris North demonstrating the Dalek to, um, Harriet, to Walter. Harriet Walter's character. Mm. But you've got 70 I minutes to fill. Guess. Yes, yeah. I, I, I quite but liked that bit. Could... At least it was something now. I actually enjoyed it. These cynical nitpicks, I enjoyed it as the thing progressed. Yes. It didn't stand up to too much logical scrutiny. No, no. But with all these things, you can explain them retrospectively if you mm. want to. It, it just felt like they burnt off a lot of guest cast parts yeah. <laughs> just to explain that and amongst all the com- the companions kind of fighting for screen time we also had Jack back in it of course and, and yeah, I quite really? liked yeah I, I quite liked him I thought that that worked well and I felt like okay Chibnall knows how to write Jack Harkness reasonably felt like it um that sort of felt like the same character that we knew from RT. Well, <laughs> after Gav had a go at you for nitpicking, I was going to say something positive. I was trying to think about what I did like about this story, but um, mm. before I got there, you have mentioned something else that I wasn't sure about. It takes a lot of effort, as far as I'm concerned, to make Jack feel a bit wishy-washy. There are a few lines which remind us who's supposed to be. Mm, but really, yeah, there were a lot of callbacks, weren't there? Yeah. I didn't really think he felt like Jack. He felt like somebody okay. doing a Jack cosplay to me. Um, um, hmm. So the standard where if I'd met this person at a convention or a live-action role-play, I would have congratulated them and shaken them by their hand and said, well done, your Jack is one of the most convincing. <laughs> but really there was something anemic about it, I thought. I'm so sorry. Yeah. The, the, the most Jack line was the one about where he'd been hiding <laughs> things. Oh, yes. yes. And, and somehow that seemed so much more uncomfortable than... <laughs> than when that line had originated. Mm. Yeah. Is it exactly the same gag as in, is it Bad Wolf? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm. He's neat talking to the uh, Andaman robot originally, rather than to Doctor Who. That <laughs> might be the difference. Between Trini- children's Trini- hero. Susanna, I think. <laughs> Look, there was one side of this story that I liked. I thought it did something, and I'm prepared to be corrected. I thought it was an original Dalek idea, something we haven't seen before, and that gets increasingly difficult to do. The yeah. idea that somebody creates some empty Dalek shells, which the Daleks then to make use of. I liked. That's not been done before, I don't think, and it shows the Daleks the way I like them best as devious and opportunistic. Was it in our Christmas special I was saying I liked resolution? It lived up to the promise. The thing we're often told about Daleks, how one Dalek is all you need to bring down mm. your civilization, that they're survivors, that they don't stop. And this, I thought, built on that promise. Mm. Yeah, it has so that, that echo was... of, of Power of the Daleks as well. Yeah, as, absolutely. So a it's, a, it's a spin and... on it. It's a better spin on that same, that power idea than Victory of the Daleks was. Mm. Because mm. It, it's the, it, it gets the important bit of Power of the Daleks, which is like Victory of the Daleks just superficially echoed it. But here, mm. it takes the point that they will grab, you give them an inch and they'll take a mile. Mm. You give them the casing and they'll jump in it. So I like that. I like also the way it undercuts the fact that everyone assumed they're going to hate it because of these new designs. I'm not going to be supercilious and pretend that I wasn't one of those. I thought, oh no, why are they fiddling with it again? But it had a plot point, so I yeah, I retract. I think that's relevant to any Dalek modification is the context of their design change. And, and these were <laughs> the reflection of the recon scout. Mm. Yeah, mm, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah so no, I, that was all good. The science fiction mm. angle. We've seen before the humans are stupid and think they can control the Daleks. Mm. And it, sometimes you have to squint a bit and understand why anybody could be that daft if they've seen mm. what these things can do. But here, we don't have that problem because nobody knows what this thing really is. Well, I suppose, mm. uh, yeah, they sort of gloss over exactly who would have known what at the beginning. I think that's the, the only other thing is that the Harriet Walter character, it was a bit of a shame. Perhaps she was a bit, you know, her political villainy. I mean, obviously, we, we sort of see her through lenses of various people mentioning, you know, names 
<laughs> but you know, I th- I feel like her angle was you know, was somewhat one dimensional, and it was a shame she didn't. That wasn't written a bit more to be directly counterpointed by the Daleks, and that she was exterminated the moment the Daleks came to life instead of actually yeah. getting a chance to getting a chance to interact with them properly. I thought it was less than one dimensional because I came away not really knowing what we were supposed to make of her. Mm. Um, it was so thin just mm. career-minded yeah that's <laughs> but but it but it's, isn't right. that the problem with modern politicians that they can't even be bothered to be evil they're just kind of a bit graspy and you know end up being incompetent i mean if anyway if, if ever there was a year when we needed the prime minister to be exterminated it was, it was this year so, <laughs> what, so i was reasonably was happy she gonna that. make any money out of this or just advance her career to, because to put your satire hat on for a mm. moment if this was really reflecting the politics of 2020 mm. she should have not been using Chris Noth's company. Mm. It, she should have been. <laughs> she should have had the Daleks made by her brother-in-law or something. It did. Um, yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely she, right. She yes. was getting a cut. Right. Okay. Yes. They shouldn't deal. have killed her off because she's Harriet Walter, and I want to see more. Harriet yeah, yeah, Walter. Right, yeah. Right, right. The Harriet yes. Walter and Assance is still in full swing. Mm. Yeah. So we talked about how Dalek invasion of Earth was very much influenced by World War Two in its depiction of an invasion and, and its aftermath. And I was wondering if perhaps we get a very brief invasion in this one. Is is this modern era influenced more by the acts of domestic and international terrorism we've seen in the last 20 years? And so our view of what a nasty incursion is, is some sort of horrific act in a short space of time that sort of then is over. I mean, clearly this was written before the pandemic when we sort of get a mm. much more protracted problem to deal with. I wonder if, it's, if, if there's an element of that in it. There's a couple of things that are very modern tropes. The imagery of crowd being suppressed by drones or some kind of technology mm-hmm. is a kind of uh, yeah. uh, modern paranoia yeah. technology su- surveillance the in populace. general. Yeah. It's it's uh, a bit I, vague, isn't it? I'm not 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 you, but the analogy. Um, <laughs> the analogy in the text. That's why you, yes, you can't it, make it any more specific because mm. it isn't any more specific than that. Yes, and it didn't it really felt like there was lines pressing on the, the revolution aspect of presumably the revolution was meant to be Harriet Walter's brilliant idea about using these things for you know for all sorts of purposes. The the sort of modern paranoia of technology being turned against people, mm. whether it's the infiltration of GCHQ or the the hacking of drones or, or anything that's mm. kind of a system of control yep. that is then vulnerable mm. to. Oh, corruption. it's a shame they didn't write that into it. Has some explanation afterwards, some bullshit explanation been put out about oh some some hackers got into them and turned them before they were destroyed or some. There you go. Covers well, the Daleks are the embodiment of the hackers. That can be part three. If one of us survived, that can be one of us <laughs> next time. But they do have nice shiny blue lights on them, just like all modern consumer electronic devices. That's very that's true, why people. Yes. It, they look like a gamer PC. Mm. Mm. Yes, they do. Mm. Maybe that's the next version. You can't really follow on from this with that, but um, one in every home. That would also have worked, wouldn't it? Okay, on a character level, what's his name? Chris Noth's character? It's so boring. Jack Robinson. I have to complain about the fact that one character is called Jack Robertson and another is called Joe... Who? Which one? Two of the main characters have names that are of a very similar construction. Harriet Walter's character. Oh, good lord. Um... I'm easily lost because I'm getting quite old now. I, I just thought she was called Prime Minister, so I didn't even notice that. Joe Patterson. Joe Patterson and Jack Robertson. You see, oh, look, yes. look, I know that they're not the same, but they're <laughs> close enough if, to confuse a stupid If you were returning person. a beloved character called Jack... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> true, yes, also true. Now look, yeah. he's got a funny character arc. I seem to remember when we discussed the classic spider story. Yeah. Mm. A lot of the controversy 
if we may call it that. That's far too strong a word. <laughs> was over the treatment of his character at the end. Yeah. Oh, I thought his... you were going to say the treatment of the spiders at the end. Well, this is the flip spider. side of the same thing. Yes, the treatment of the spider mm-hmm. and also the fact that he gets away scot-free, which we were wondering if it made, was trying to make any sort of satirical point about the, I don't know, the idea that you just cannot bring anyone to justice in this corrupt modern world. But here we are. He's come back a second time. He's even worse. For long stretches, you think perhaps he's going to see the air of his ways, and that's going to be the trope we're going down. But in fact, he, he suddenly turns a corner out of nowhere and decides to sell out the whole of humanity. Mm. And he gets away with it again. Are they setting him up for a third appearance where the point of all this finally becomes clear? He's going not? to be a pre Hartnell doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he had some of the best lines. Uh, well, he, well, I actually I, enjoyed the, him more than last time, yeah. He was thoroughly enjoyable some of the time. Yeah, he's, he is a good, he's some a of good the sillier things actor, about him, like the fact that he was seemed to be prepared to just shoot people, uh, British mm. police officers, which just seemed baffling the first time round. The fact that they repeated here made me think perhaps that was actually deliberate and it just mm. hadn't been clear enough for my taste. Well, anyway, I hope there's going to be a part three. Mm. There's only seven episodes this next series, though, so, you know... Okay, that won't. No, I maybe he'll turn out the, the big bad of the 13th Doctor's Yeah, it's going to be era. a seven-episode story arc, like <laughs> the Master. Look, if you can get uh, an inter- If the big bad of one series in this era can be somebody with teeth in their face... Well, anyway, we've got a throwaway line about him. Um, perhaps his American political hopes are not dead, so perhaps they will follow through on that. Well, supposedly mm. Chibnall has a trilogy in mind in terms of his specials in terms of the Dalek sequence I believe there is a, Does he? He has a third in one of these rare rare moments of him actually uttering anything at all about his plans supposedly there is a, a sort of loose trilogy of Dalek stories he has in mind so presumably that will be right. a future festive special unless I'm just making that up completely but I'm sure I read it somewhere Gav mm. are the uh, what do we call these the Patterson Daleks <laughs> better or worse than the new paradigm Daleks from a design point of view don't take into account what they were trying to achieve just um, as an artist and a man with a great I, visual sense I don't know is the honest <laughs> answer I've lost all sense of perspective <laughs> because I genuinely don't know how much of what we think of as the right shape of a Dalek is because it's just what we're used to. Mm. I think some of the first Daleks I saw, the first Daleks I grew to love were the Imperials in Remembrance of the Daleks. Mm. And I've heard people talk about how grotesque they are in terms of their shape and colour. So, you know, and a normal member of the public would be hard-pressed to discern the difference between a a 1960s Dalek and a Remembrance Dalek. Mm. As as indeed with a newspaper cartoonist. (laughs) (laughs) And so... I struggle to know truthfully whether we really are just sort of indoctrinated into what a Dalek is supposed to look like. I mean, it's like Stormtrooper designs or anything else. Whatever you grew up with is right and and other things look weird. Because now I look at the new paradigm Daleks and part of me says, I I don't know what all the fuss was about. I mean, they're fine, aren't they? I was hoping... But also it is part of the nature of the story is that they're this new invention. They're a humanized version. Mm-hmm. It's not close to its original form. So it's kind of riffing with certain ideas. I, I find the way that the eye stalk sits in the head is really weird. There's loads I do like. I like the 
the um, the sort of sucker claw hybrid. Mm-hmm. I, I find it really interesting to have a front panel which is flat rather than pointed. Uh-huh. There's loads of design details that I like, but it's really hard to get away from the fact that the proportions of the Dalek mm. are kind of what gives it its mm. identity. But I think also it's interesting the sort of evolution of size and shape and practicality because the original Daleks were designed to be small and compact yeah. and they wanted to make them as small as possible for a human operator. And then later they got bigger fenders and they became bigger in stature and that was the version that made it to film. And that was the version that uh, Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat wanted to evoke when they reinvented them Mm. for Victory of the Daleks. So you get this new, huge version of the Daleks because they thought that they would be better if they were bigger. And now we're in a situation where they are building Dalek props which have no human operators inside, which is the illusion that they were originally going for in 1963 Mm. when they built the smallest possible casing. So they've sort of come full circle Mm. back to this tiny, compact casing that you believe doesn't have a person inside. So I think that's quite interesting. Mm. Wow. You've just summed up. We can't can't go on from here. That's said it all. That's said it all. It's tied up the two stories we've been discussing this evening and pretty much everything you ever needed to know about Daleks. Mm. Beautiful. Almost like I planned it. (laughs) Almost like I was queued up to ask you. And yet I I wasn't. I thought the spaceship was fantastic. Mm -hmm. I thought the set was brilliant. I thought that opening shot, the Steadicam shot, was beautiful. When you look back to Victory of the Daleks, which was shot in that cigar (laughs) factory, (laughs) the difference is extraordinary. (laughs) Yes, it certainly is. Mm. They even had the bright noises, didn't they? Yes. It's very conspicuous. It was loud and conspicuous enough that I was able to explain it to my wife, which mm. I always enjoy. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. That one. Mm. Was that one well, not what you were talking there about? Was, there was that, but the Dalek alarm that went off was the uh, 1963 Dalek alarm mm. sound effect. Mm. Crikey. And also, when they went into the chamber with the Dalek mutants in the tanks, that was the squealing, squelching noise from Genesis of the Daleks. <laughs> I thought I recognised oh, fantastic. That. They were my two favourite bits in the episode. <laughs> from a plot point of view, the one thing I didn't like, Giles, as you said about easy resolutions, I'm always slightly um, wary when <laughs> when people talk easy resolutions in films, because often when people say, oh, that was a bit convenient, that was a bit easy, mm. they're talking out their asses. They're not taking into account that all plots follow a certain structure and have to be contrived in inverted commas. But anyway, when I realised it was going down the route that did that War Games thing, the problem's got too big for the Doctor to fix herself, so there's mm. only one thing she can do Call in the time balls. I mean, sorry, call in the other Daleks. Mm. And then I, I thought, and I'm not going to enjoy this because there's no way this can go. Is it a big enough problem that it would require that sort of solution? In every sense, that going to be a worse problem than the one you're trying to fix? Fighting fire with mm. lots more fire with hotter fire. Or is it a retread of Remembrance of the Daleks? Mm. But the Doctor just didn't. Forced- Two factions together to step back and let them wipe each other out. Somehow, that's plotted in such a clever way that you don't realise that it's an incredibly dangerous thing to do (laughs) and to put Earth Mm. in the middle. Mm. Um, Whereas this is not quite as subtle. My pal Ian McArdle, um, hello Ian, I'm sure you'll be listening to this later, questioned whether or not the entire, whether the same resolution could have been used for the security drone Daleks on their own as the Doctor ultimately used for the Death Squad Daleks. The answer to that I now realise is no, because the security drones weren't as mobile and uh, certainly couldn't fly 
and one well, flown into the TARDIS in the same way. That's a real-world explanation, but of course that's they could real, have been written yes. so that they could. So from the writing point of view, that's not necessarily a, an answer either way. Mm. Yeah, anyway, for me, that's when it sort of loses me and become, and I start to see not a sophisticated television programme, but a child in a sandpit with a little Daleks bashing them into each other, saying, and then the... <laughs> and then, <laughs> 10,000 more come in and they're bigger yeah, than the other ones. I don't mind that too much in, in the context of a New Year's Day special kind of... I don't mind a bit of that that kind of thing where the, where the writer just thinks, OK, let's think in terms of an eight-year-old child playing Daleks. It's a very chaotic element to introduce mm. that is resolved extremely elegantly. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's why it's jarring because it's a real throw a six to see what happens mm. and how it just works out perfectly. Mm. Normally it doesn't 100% work and then you spend the final act mopping up the problems mopping that you've the, created. Yes. In terms mm. of general plot structure, that's all fine. It's just the specifics, and I can't really discuss that without something incredibly fanish, rather than somebody with any qualification to be talking about plot structure. It's the thought that you could control the Daleks. Why, why do these Daleks only mm. care about mopping up the mm. fake Daleks? Why don't they then think, oh, here's a planet that we can enslave? Mm. Why would they... Why would... The, 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 they also specifically only care about then pouring into the TARDIS. Yeah. It's, it's a very specific sequence of events. And that, mm. uh... am I the only person? Because as much as it is elegant, the solution is Chekhov's spare TARDIS, mm-hmm. which has been hidden in plain mm-hmm. sight. Who knows whether it was planned back when it was introduced. It's only the story before, if, isn't it? And it was, it's I tell you what, the version we got annoys me that you would waste a TARDIS, one of only two remaining TARDISes, the most extraordinary craft mm. ever <laughs> to exist. There's only two left in the entire universe, and you would just waste one on something like this. It's, again, it feels more like something you'd do in a game than in mm. on paper. Um, but I think I'd have bought it more if it had been to get out of a situation that the Doctor hadn't put herself into ten minutes mm. earlier. Mm. I think that's what would have made the difference. Bigger. Yeah, if it had been to resolve a threat that had built up slowly over the course of the entire series, maybe. <laughs> I, I struggle to remember where that spare TARDIS came from. That's, that's the one that the fam escaped from Gallifrey in at the end of the previous episode. Uh, so it mm. wasn't... Joe okay. Martin's TARDIS, even though it looks no, like it. No, so this is now no. supposed to be the, the default TARDIS design, okay. Mm. Yeah, yeah, oh, they, well. just, they just happened. So Joe Martin's got a TARDIS as well. Oh, so we will Maybe. be seeing it again, good. Yes, of course, because there are other tunnels, other TARDISes, even though there aren't, even though they're wide mm. from all of history and all of space. Well, I mean, <laughs> if one, the one same... thing that's for sure is that every time we see the Daleks, they always get all wiped out, mm. and, but there's always more Daleks. And whenever we see Gallifrey in the new series, it always gets completely wiped out, but then it's, it's always back again. So, you know, I, I'm not sure we've seen the last of either. And that will keep you in capsule summaries of the history of Gallifrey for the um, foreseeable future, won't it, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> well, huzzah. Huzzah, indeed. So two stories here, both recorded at the end of a long block. One of them held over rather longer than the other. They both contain a Dalek invasion, but very different types. They've each got a new and unique Dalek design. We've talked about that. You've got Daleks beside Parliament in one, and you've got them in Downing Street in the other. And there's fairly long stretches in both stories where the Daleks sort of disappear to come back at the end. And then, and then of course, as, as we've also discussed, there's a, there's a goodbye to a companion at the end with no Daleks anywhere near it. So one could claim there are a lot of parallels. One could claim there's almost no parallels, <laughs> depending upon how you are minded. Feels like a good summary. 
It is. If you'd said it in a more upbeat voice, it would have been a great way to end. You just said it. <laughs> you actually really fed up about the whole thing. You know, you know me, it's, it's, it's very rare that I would um, make a big deal about anything. <laughs> Gaff, thanks for, for sticking with this God, yes, for, for as long as you have. You know, we, we noticed a little while ago that there was something that you were keen to draw attention to. Is there anything else that you wanted to flog while you're uh, given a pulpit? <laughs> well, the YouTube channel, hopefully, will burst back into life in mere moments, days, weeks mm-hmm. hopefully not months probably not years. I've been given a sneak preview I, I, and there is some astonishing stuff to come um, from, well thank you from this new, uh, yeah, uh, new iteration Paul's seen two episodes Yeah, mm-hmm. there is a theoretical series 2 of what we call Terry Nation Army uh-huh. in development and uh, rather than working on that I've just been just doing random things that catch my interest <laughs> the Dardis and uh, <laughs> Terry Nation's attitude to space travel and random things mm-hmm. fantastic yeah well I mean whatever it is uh, we'll always be interested to, to, to watch it because uh, everything so far has been high quality and thought provoking thank you the reading up I've done on Dalek Invasion of Earth today has made me want to do a video on all of the stuff in Dalek Invasion of Earth which is David Whittaker's rather than Terry Nation's. Mm-hmm. Like the Dalek coming out of the Thames, that is David Whittaker, not Terry Nation. Yeah, okay. So I would, I would quite like to dive into it's that. It's such a work of scholarship. There have been various philosophers and, and people who have dedicated their lives throughout the centuries to determining who wrote different books of the Bible, wrote and rewrote the original Torah and the, and the other books, the way it's evolved, and um, you know to settle differences that are a great theological moment. To many of the peoples of this planet, and they pale into insignificance. They might as well not have bothered, Gavin. Mm, I know. I've I've often thought that. I lie awake at night thinking just how incredible my body of work is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Paul, Giles, any uh, final thoughts or things you want want to uh, plug before we disappear? No. No new no. books. No forthcoming TV appearances that I'm aware of. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my only my only connector is still available on iPlayer. Uh, we were on New Year's oh, Eve. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, indeed. Me and Mr. Dorney and Mr. Wildig were on New Year's Eve on BBC Two, so uh, representing the Gallifreyans. Uh, so yeah, enjoy that. It's worth it for Victoria yes. Cameron Mitchell's hat action, if nothing else. <laughs> indeed. I have to record an interview with myself for the bonus disc of a forthcoming Big Finish release. But, um, oh, fantastic! It's not that imminent, <laughs> so I can't. T- so I can't tell you what it is. But um, I no. just wanted to say something. I was feeling left out there. With yourself? Yeah. Well, it... <laughs> in the style of Alan Partridge, <laughs> I get to choose um, any interview. I might do Michael Parkinson for one, Partridge for another. <laughs> uh, tell me about your childhood. <laughs> um, so I, I actually t- talking about Parky I, I missed the lead on this which is of course we've, we've for, for, for a few seconds we've got an all all Yorkshire TARDIS team at long last yeah um, yes uh, Jodie Whittaker and, and uh, Mandy Gill I mean not you know, we've, we'll see now a scouser on the scene to spoil that purity <laughs> but for a, but for a, a brief moment you know uh, the, the the Yorkies can rejoice in the fact that we have um, for the first time ever and the first time an all female team. I hope we get at least one story so that we can. Well, let's have at least two episodes: one for the people who want a, an all female team, and another one for the <laughs> presumably slightly smaller contingent who are desperate to see an all Yorkshire team, and then bring in. The, <laughs> Isn't it lovely the that, that both of those constituencies can be answered in the same breath? Mm. <laughs> it makes it look like tokenism. <laughs> 
I take this opportunity to throw my friend Anthony Lamb under the bus? <laughs> because he'd never heard of John Bishop. Oh, what? He said, I don't even know who John Bishop is. Mm. I said, really? He's a fairly famous Scouse comedian. Yeah. And he said, oh, I've never heard of him. I said, I'm amazed. He's on Michael McIntyre. Eight out of ten cats. <laughs> Mock the week. Stargazing live. He was in Skins and QI. He's been on Jonathan Ross. Uh, comic relief many times over the years. <laughs> he had his own show, The John Bishop <laughs> Show. <laughs> He won Animal Celebrity Champion Award of the RSPCA Honours for his work with Animal Rescue. Surely you know him from that. <laughs> his brother played for Tranmere Rovers. Oh, well. So apparently there are people who don't know who John Bishop is. But, on the other hand, it will help visibility in the American market. Hmm. They may know his brother. <laughs> in the soaker. Hmm. Very good. <laughs> Have we already said goodbye? I don't think we have actually said goodbye. As we such. were starting to, weren't we? I think some yeah. of us did. <laughs> mm. It was just shambolic. You, you probably you did. And I talked to, over you. You asked us whether we wanted to plug in a thing, and we did that bit. And then yes. So you probably want to. You probably want to put a bow on it. Do you want to plug in a thing, Richard? No, I just want to get to bed now. I think. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, th- thanks everyone for listening to something. Who it's been? It's been good to have you on board, and, and heaven knows how long this thing has actually lasted. <laughs> in the edit, it certainly lasted forever in real time. Although it's been a, a real pleasure talking to to, to Gavin and uh, my two mates on this. But from now, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs> it's goodbye from Bye. me. Bye. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, literally, literally, anytime. But I, I've sure <laughs> got far more. Uh, um, I think exciting things to do uh, elsewhere. But yeah, you know, uh, I think we couldn't possibly have talked about a, about a Dalek story with such confidence without your presence. I didn't even get to make the point I wanted to make oh, about uh, bronze Daleks in what was it called? Revolution. Revolution. This will be the um, what's that bit you put at the end? Yes. If we if there aren't any funny outtakes, then we just put miscellaneous yeah. points. Go on. What was the point? Make it now. It was just frustrating that there was a big build-up to a leader Dalek, and then there wasn't a different coloured Dalek. Yeah, true. Yes. I mean, uh, yeah. Bloody budget. It, it was they such couldn't a simple thing. Take me to your leader. And... If only they'd had Richard Martin painting every other panel black, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Dalek Invasion of Earth has them just like chucking new Dalek colour schemes in at mm. a moment's notice. Yeah. Yeah. Have they not even still um, got a black one, or did they paint that bronze? Do you know? Dalek sec no. Go it was gold again by uh, season I I can't remember. I I would have even put up with a new paradigm. I liked the way we had it in towards the end of the Moffat era where they'd kept one of them. Uh, was it the white one? Oh no, hang on, the white one was the leader of the Dalek Parliament, wasn't it? And I thought it worked quite nicely as 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 a one off. Mm. So and they uh, turned the colours down. They had the, the nice darker red, and mm. that was dotted around the Parliament as well. Mm. Yeah. But no, I just think Shame. that um, there was there was a kind of conspicuous build-up to a leader Dalek of some kind. Mm. Captain Jack saying, "Take me to your leader," and then he appeared on the ship and said, "Who do I speak to around here?" Or was that mm. effect? And you just thought, well, "This is a perfect opportunity. It's just paint one of the bronze Daleks I- silver, or put a black dome on its head, or or that red something. one with the bronze." Bits coming down off its yeah. dome that was supposed to have Harriet Smith inside. Yeah, because they got that back didn't. for the 
five years ago, whenever it was, mm. on Scarrow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. There was there was a merchandising opportunity there yeah. to just paint a Dalek silver or red or mm. something fun. Yeah, definitely. Well, on the other hand, I suppose character options can now bung out a box set of leader Dalek from Revolution of the Daleks without actually having to paint it a different colour. <laughs> this is true. And uh, look at that, Gav, I've given you the opening line. Am I Susan or Barbara? Uh, Barbara. I'll just do it as me. <laughs> Shall I start? There is a great yeah. similarity. Both have that sort of calm, reassuring, sensible yeah. sort of and the sort of light bulb style haircut as well. Well, that, that was well saying. Grown over lockdown. Let me just see. What's the, what's the protocol for heavily editing things? I mean, uh, Paul was just clapping wildly into the air when I normally say excised. I know it's a mild process. What, what happens is I go through it afterwards at very great length. Try and I remove, <laughs> I remove all the stuff that I yeah. think is less than, than um, you know, well, I guess anything that's extraneous. So, so I mean, most of it will make the final cut, but I'll make all of us sound a little bit cleverer than we actually were by removing things <laughs> like ums and ers and, and, and getting and where we were talking on top of each other. Mm. Yeah, and getting actors to re-record the entire thing from the script <laughs> by <laughs> some of the great philosophical minds Yes, of and our then time. we spent three weeks in the studio doing ADR. <laughs> mm-hmm.